The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source Church can be found at www.thesourcechurch.life. Good morning, everyone. Please pray with me. Our great God, we're so thankful to be here this morning. And we're so thankful for what you're doing in our midst. We thank you for raising up Brett Paddock as an elder. And Lord, we ask that today would be a sweet day as we mark that event. And we pray that it would be a day not only for um, him feeling confirmed and equipped, but we pray that we would all be confirmed and equipped in the service that you have for each one of us to do as we're part of your church. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So today is a special day when we get to welcome Brett Paddock onto our team of pastors. So he's going to share responsibility for the flock of God in our midst. And he'll do that through prayer. And he'll do that through teaching the word of God in all sorts of contexts and situations. And so this will be a special sermon to some degree. I'm going to be speaking directly to Brett uh, about his new responsibility, but it's also not any less a sermon for everyone because this chapter is a gem from the treasure chest of God's word and the Holy Spirit wants to use it to change all of us through this time in it together. He wants all of us to think deeply about what it means to serve God. And what is the nature of Christian ministry? And what should our expectations be? What sort of unique benefits or burdens come with serving God? In the 2003 film, Luther, there's some dialogue that I think about frequently. It's, as far as I know, it's just an artistically imagined conversation. But um, there's this seasoned church leader, Cardinal Cayetan, and he asks a young Vatican recruit, Alejandro, What is it that you seek? And the zealous young man replies, I seek to serve God, to serve him with all my heart. Then, the cardinal predicts, that is how you will be tempted. So what he's getting at is the reality that everyone who is in Christian ministry, whether it's professional ministry or lay ministry, even everyone who just wants to serve others in the name of Christ, so every fruitful Christian will face temptation to make of those ministry efforts something either different or more grand or more palatable than what God desires and has actually appointed for us. See, our definition of success and what God is actually accomplishing through us, they rarely match up. And that can send us into a tailspin. We think, do these risks I'm taking for God even matter? Are my sacrifices for the sake of his kingdom, are they ineffective? Are they irrelevant? Is God not following through on his promises? Why does serving him so often feel like one step forward, three steps back? What will you do when disappointment comes, when your role in serving him isn't matching up to what you had hoped it would be? And that will be the case. You know, ever since I was about 20 years old, I've wanted to serve God with my whole life. And that's a holy desire. But those holy desires don't mean that I'm any less susceptible to sin. 
It just means that the enemy has to use a different temptation. And at times, that has led to an unhealthy obsession with making my life count, right? And this is just in step with our culture. Our culture is steeped in this desire for self-actualization, for realizing all that we can be as individuals. Maybe it's from Disney, or maybe it's just from human pride. We have this fascination with fully becoming the person we believe we were meant to be. And so the temptation for those who want to serve God is simply to use the church as their platform for achieving their potential. And slowly, I know at times I've fallen into patterns of chasing after work of eternal significance rather than pursuing the God who gives eternal significance. A breakthrough came for me, interestingly enough, when I was reading this obscure narrative passage. Um, Let's read Jeremiah chapter 45 again. It says, The word that Jeremiah the prophet spoke to Baruch the son of Neriah when he wrote these words in a book at the dictation of Jeremiah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, to you, O Baruch. He said, Woe is me, for Yahweh has added sorrow to my pain. I'm weary with my groaning, and I find no rest. Thus shall you say to him, Thus says Yahweh, Behold, what I've built up, I'm breaking down. And what I've planted, I'm plucking up. That is, the whole land. And do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. For behold, I'm bringing disaster upon all flesh, declares Yahweh. But I will give you your life as a prize of war in all places to which you may go. So if you're not familiar with the book of Jeremiah, Baruch, the son of Neriah, was a Jewish aristocrat in the 6th century BC. And this is really interesting. I just learned that Baruch is actually the only Old Testament figure that we have fingerprinted. I kid you not. In 1986, archaeologists deciphered some clay document markers that bear the seal of Baruch, son of Neriah, and the dating checks out. And on one of them, there's also a thumbprint right there next to the seal. So I think that's cool just to to remember this guy is flesh and blood. This is a real person with dreams and disappointments just like us. Now, 2 Chronicles tells us that Baruch's grandfather had actually been a governor in the region. And Jeremiah 51 tells us that Baruch's brother, Sariah, would be chamberlain to King Zedekiah. So this is a family of movers and shakers. But for some reason, hopefully for love of God... Uh, Baruch became the scribe of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was also known as the weeping prophet. Doesn't sound too attractive, does it? Jeremiah's prophecies are a mix of dark and light, but it was mostly dark for his contemporaries. He's, he's assuring them that God's judgment is going to fall on them through a coming conquest. He told them that because of their sin, they're going to be taken into exile in Babylon, and then the land would pass into decay. So it's not a popular message. But Jeremiah also looked forward to the time of Christ in which God would finally transform his people and renew his creation. So Baruch was a scribe for, he he painstakingly recorded all of Jeremiah's prophecies at least twice. And in addition to that arduous task, Baruch also 
had to risk his life by taking that scroll and going into the temple courts and reading it to all the people who were gathered there because Jeremiah couldn't even show his face in public or else he would have been dragged away and stoned. Um, so Baruch, he sent Baruch instead. Baruch was, had to walk into this potential death sentence, but Baruch did it, and he stayed faithful in service through many years of subjection to public mockery and conflict with rulers and false prophets and persistent threats on his life. And then, in the end, both Jeremiah and Baruch were dragged down to Egypt against their will. So at some point in all these trials, it seems that Baruch had reached the end of his rope. Verse 1 says that this message was given to Baruch when he wrote these words in the fourth year of King Jehoiakim. So why did Baruch particularly need these words at that time? Well, let me tell you about chapter 36. In chapter 36, it also happened in the, uh, the fourth year of Jehoiakim. Baruch is just finishing writing out all those words of Jeremiah. I mean, you know that was a lot more difficult in the ancient world, right? We're talking about parchment, scrolls, and dipping ink and all that. Um, and, uh, and then Baruch took those words, courageously read them in the temple, and that started sort of a chain reaction. So I'll start reading in chapter 36, verse 11. It says, When Micaiah, the son of Gemariah, son of Shaphan, heard all the words of the Lord from the scroll, he went down to the king's house, into the secretary's chamber, and all the officials were sitting there, Elishima the secretary, Deliah the son of Shemaiah, Elnathan the son of Akbor, Gemariah the son of Shaphan, Zedekiah the son of Hananiah, and all the officials. This is a lot of names. It can feel tedious, but just keep in mind, these are real people in history, and what this is doing for us is it's kind of like a movie where you see, like, oh, man, momentum is gathering. Like, the word's getting out. This person heard it. They're telling others, and what's going to happen? You feel that. And Micaiah told them all the words that he had heard when Baruch read the scroll in the hearing of the people. Then all the officials sent Jehudi, the son of Nathaniah, son of Shelemiah, son of Cushi, to say to Baruch, take in your hand the scroll that you read in the hearing of the people and come. So Baruch, the son of Neriah, took the scroll in his hand and came to them. And they said to him, sit down and read it. So Baruch read it to them. And when they heard all the words, they turned to one another in fear. That's good. They're fearing the Lord. And they said to Baruch, we must report all these words to the king. And they asked Baruch, tell us, please, how did you write all these words? Was it at his dictation? Baruch answered them, he dictated all these words to me while I wrote them with ink on the scroll. Then the officials said to Baruch, go and hide, you and Jeremiah. Let no one know where you are. So then they went into the king's court. And the king sent Jehudi to get the scroll. And he took it from the chamber of Elishama the secretary. And Jehudi read it to the king and all the officials who stood beside the king. What's going to happen? Is it going to be a time of repentance? A time of awakening in the land? Well, it was the ninth month and the king was sitting in the winter house. And there was a fire burning in the fire pot before him. As Jehudi read three or four columns the king would cut them off with a knife and throw them into the fire, in the fire pot, until the entire scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the fire pot. This is months, maybe years of Baruch's work. Yet neither the king nor any of his servants were afraid, nor did they tear their garments. And the king commanded uh, his servants to seize Baruch the secretary and Jeremiah the prophet 
but the Lord hid them. And then the king, after the king had burned the scroll, the words uh, of the Lord came to Jeremiah, take another scroll and write on it all the former words that Jehoiakim the king had burned. And we read that Jeremiah took another scroll, gave it to Baruch, who wrote on it at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of the scroll that Jehoiakim had burned in the fire, and many similar words were added to them. So maybe you can start to see why Baruch was a bit burdened and a bit bothered at the thought of where was this ministry going or where was it not going. So in chapter 45, I want to show you three things. First, the servant's complaint in dark times. Second, let's look at Scripture's rebuke to the complaining servant in dark times. And third, let's look at God's promise to the complaining servant in dark times. So complaint, rebuke, promise. That's where we're going. We'll just flash this outline up as we go through each point. So first I want you to see the servant's complaint. He says, woe is me, for the Lord has added sorrow to my pain. I'm weary with my groaning. I find no rest. Just an observation, serving God unconditionally is often a source of sorrow, pain, weariness, restlessness. This was certainly the case for the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians. He remembers danger from my own people, danger from outsiders, danger from false brothers, in toil, in hardship, through many a sleepless night. And apart from other things, there's a daily pressure on me of anxiety for all the churches. Who's weak and I'm not weak? Who's made to fall and I'm not indignant? This is normal Christian ministry. But this was even more the case for Christ himself. Jesus said, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He was mocked by his own people. He was slandered and condemned by the respected leaders. And Jesus was eventually killed because of his unflinching devotion to the Father. And Jesus says to us, pick up your cross and follow me. He says that we would be hated by all for the sake of his name. So this isn't just formal Christian ministry. This is normal Christianity. Now serving the Lord is a voluntary entrance into the darkness in order to function as the light of Christ in that place. An entrance into darkness always comes with a certain amount of sorrow, pain, weariness, restlessness. So it's important for us to see this as normal service to God. It's not an anomaly. It's not because Satan is somehow winning. It's because the place where the Lord has you to serve as his instrument of light can be dark. This is true whether you're a pastor. It's true whether you're serving in kids ministry or AV or hospitality or you're uh, serving in a soup kitchen or you're, you're serving in an old folks' home. Anything you are trying to do in the name of Christ to shine his light in a dark place, it comes with hardship, it comes with pain, it comes with sorrow. Ministry is hard at times because really all times until the time of Christ's return are dark, but they're dark in different ways. The times are dark in different ways. So, for example, you think about a pastor in the 1600s, okay? 
he might well think, man, I am pastoring at the very end of the world here. Everywhere around him was war and brutality and plagues. And how do you get up one more day to see another dying child or another political injustice or another family torn apart? Well, now a pastor in our day has different pressures altogether. Whereas a pastor in the 1600s would actually be honored in the community as a leader. If I tell people today that I'm a pastor, well, they almost universally raise their eyebrows, kind of purse their lips in anger. <laughs> I kid you not, some, some people just coldly say, oh, and they walk away. See, I don't have to worry about poverty and disease in the community as much as my darkness is the constant onslaught of false teaching and deconstruction and just apathy infecting the church. Well, then you turn to a pastor in Burma or Venezuela and their darkness is something altogether different. Maybe just trying to stay alive today. So there's nothing wrong with feeling the darkness of your times. There's nothing wrong with most of Baruch's complaint. He's honestly noting the hardships that come with the role that he's been given. He's acknowledging the Lord's hand in it. It's good for him not to have a fake smile. It's good for him not to just have a forced cheerfulness that's actually like a ticking time bomb. Where Baruch goes wrong, though, is that the darkness is all that he sees. Where he goes wrong is that his conclusion from it all is, woe is me. Woe is me. Baruch is throwing himself a little pity party. Now, when you read the Old Testament, Baruch is in good company, right? Moses, Elijah, Jonah, Job, even Jeremiah in chapter 20 said stuff like, I've become a laughingstock all the day. Everyone mocks me. Cursed be the day on which I was born. Why did I come out from the womb to see toil and sorrow and spend my days in shame? So Baruch is in good company with this complaint. It's, it's not abnormal. Is the complaint understandable? Yes, we sympathize. It's understandable. But is it right? Definitely no. Beware of this slippery little thought, woe is me. Woe is me. I have it so bad. It would be better if I were, well, anywhere but here. Brett, in your ministry, watch out for woe is me. And all of us, in whatever situation God has placed you to serve and to stand against the darkness, watch out for woe is me. Because as we will see those words are words of blindness and those words are words of pride. So let's look at the rebuke that Baruch is given starting in verse four. Thus you shall say to him, thus says Yahweh, behold, what I have built, I'm breaking down and what I have planted, I'm plucking up. That is the whole land. And do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. For behold, I am bringing disaster upon all flesh, declares the Lord. So there's really two parts to the rebuke that Baruch is given here. Uh, first, he says, Baruch, get with the times. Understand what God is doing. Understand what his purposes are in your context and through your ministry. Maybe Baruch longed for the good old days. You know, the days during the reign of King Hezekiah or King Josiah. Days when the word of God was revered in the land. Why couldn't he have been born in a time like that? Why did his work always have to feel so futile and, and only resulting in rejection? Answer, 
It was a time when the Lord was breaking down and plucking up and bringing disaster upon all flesh. So not only was God tearing down the corrupt nation of Judah, but if you look over just a page or two in Jeremiah, you can see oracles of judgment on Egypt, on the Philistines, on Moab, on Ammon, on Edom, on Damascus, on Babylon. This was a time when the whole ancient world just seemed to be in turmoil. And that would be the entire ministry of Jeremiah and Baruch in the midst of this darkness, seemingly even stirring up this turmoil. Jeremiah's call in the very first chapter of the book, verse 9, and then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And Yahweh said to me, See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Now we may think, yeah, that, that would stink to be a messenger of doom. The prophets sure had it rough. I'm glad we live in the bright times when God is only building up and not tearing down. Well, it's not that simple. First of all, throughout redemptive history, God is always doing both. Even with Jeremiah here, his message is both to destroy and to overthrow and to build and to plant. But the destruction and the overthrow was what's going to be felt immediately by his contemporaries. The building and the planting, those would only see their good effects throughout the generations, long after Jeremiah and Baruch are gone. But God is always in the business of displacing evil and securing his people in grace. Sure, sure, but but ministry is different in Jesus, right? Well, let's think about Jesus. The prophet Simeon told Mary about her son, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And John the Baptist said this about Jesus, His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn, chaff will burn with unquenchable fire. So God is always in the business of displacing evil and securing his people of grace. Okay, sure, but gospel ministry is bright and thrilling, right? We get to tell the good news. We get to build up the church. We get to see people transformed. Yes. And how did the apostle Paul describe that experience? He said it feels like he's a man sentenced to death, one who has become a spectacle to the whole world. Doesn't sound that different from Jeremiah. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that we have become and still are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Why would that be the case after the time of Jesus? Because in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and also among those who are perishing. To one, we are a fragrance from death to death. They smell rottenness. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. And Paul just feels the weight of this. He feels the burden of it. And he says, who is sufficient for these things? See, even after Pentecost, every time has its darkness. And that's why we don't necessarily trust the theology of those churches that name themselves something like always victorious ministries. Well, they see the power of the gospel rightly. That's cool. But they don't see the times correctly. They don't see that they're skipping over the time of the cross and they're fast-forwarding right to the crown. 
But when we read our New Testaments, we don't get the sense really that easier times are coming for the church. Sure, there will be episodes of revival and great awakening. Praise God for that. But humanity is also getting more advanced in its ability to create new forms of evil. Human history is on a downward spiral, even though the people of God are on an upward journey. Second Peter says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So our reality is not that different from Jeremiah's. It is a time for building and planting, but it's also a time for plucking up and destroying. And I'm not trying to bum you guys out, okay? I just want us to have a reality check, and I want us to be equipped with what Baruch needed. He needed an understanding of the purposes of God that wasn't simplistic. He needed a willingness to fit into whatever God had planned as necessary for the times. You know, my wife has a sticker on her water bottle that says, I became a teacher for the money and fame. <laughs> well, we could, just as, we could just as sarcastically say, I became a pastor for the ability to influence and for the measurable sense of success. If you're a faithful pastor, no, you didn't. And if you're a servant of God who understands the times, yeah, you're going to aim for God to be glorified through everything you do, and you want, that, you want him to be known, you want him to be honored and praised, but you also won't be surprised when it still seems that disaster is coming on all flesh and it feels like you're merely shouting into the wind. So that's the first part of the rebuke. Baruch, understand the times. But the second part of the rebuke is even more stinging. Baruch, humble yourself. The Lord calls him out saying, and do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. For behold, I'm bringing disaster upon all flesh, declares the Lord. So Baruch's dream for his own service to God didn't match the reality of what God was requiring from him. And we don't know the exact details of why that's the case. Maybe, maybe Baruch had thoughts of being a great scribe for the people, similar to what Ezra would be 130 years later. He wanted to maybe teach the people about holiness and see them repent and, and, and come to a, a place of right worship. Maybe that's what Baruch was dreaming of for himself. Maybe he just simply wanted to do good work and raise a family in comfort and peace. But whatever his aspiration was, it didn't fit with what God had appointed for that time. It was a time of death and destruction and inevitable rejection of those who held out the words of God. See, we all come to Christian ministry, Christian service of all types, we come with expectations. We know, okay, it's not a place to get rich. I'm not going to get great influence and power. But it's fairly natural to think, you know, I, I, I think I'll be appreciated by others. Or I think I'll be able to achieve those goals that, that I really feel God himself has placed on my heart. So we have these expectations, these ambitions. And if we're trying to spread his name and we're trying to gather people into his church, why wouldn't those efforts be guaranteed success? One answer is that in his wisdom, it's the wrong time. But another answer is that there may be too much of self mixed into those pursuits. 
It's more than possible to look and to talk in a God-centered way while all the time having our hopes pinned to the mindset that, you know, this is all going to work out for my own sense of accomplishment and being appreciated by others. And that's why a great prayer, when you're starting any ministry role, or a great prayer really when you're starting any day as a Christian, is the prayer of surrender. To just say, God, I'm yours. Use me, or don't. However you please, I let go once again of my right to rule my own life. That's the prayer of surrender. Another prayer that I like to pray when I see too much of myself is getting mixed up in my ministry efforts goes something like this. I pray, God, in what I'm about to attempt for you, make yourself look great, even if that requires that I end up looking weak and foolish. And sometimes he does answer both parts of that prayer. And I do look weak and foolish. But there's a sweetness to that experience, even when his fame comes at expense to my own dignity. And I want to think more about why that's the case. But first, let's just summarize this correction that Baruch has received through Jeremiah from the Lord. Baruch needed to see God as the one who is doing something huge, something necessary, something good in history. But he's doing it over a time frame that would extend longer than Baruch's time on this earth. And so we see what folly it would be for this Hebrew scribe to try to dictate terms to God, to try to tell him the role he was willing to play. You don't speak to the omnipotent one, the all-wise architect in that way. You say, well, I could serve here, here, here. No, you say, I'm yours. What do you have for me? It was not a time for building up and preserving. It was a time for tearing down and destroying. God had no need for a thriving, respectable messenger in a time of doom. So Brett, your ministry will not go the way you expect it to. I don't know how. Um, The hardships will probably not be the ones you were ready for. The successes will often be more subtle and you won't even be able to see them maybe. Others will. Others may tell you the way God's using you, but you'll be discouraged at times because you won't see it for yourself. But if you are surrendered to God, then your service will be accomplishing his purposes, even when you feel sad and hurting and weary and restless. But that's not all that this passage has for us. Baruch did need to see the bigness of God. He did need to understand the often mysterious nature of God's purposes. But he also just needed to see God as a God who is full of mercy. And that's how this passage ends in verse 5, with God's promise in dark times. He says, But I will give you your life as a prize of war in all the places to which you may go. So in the Old Testament time of types and shadows, God promises physical salvation to Baruch. And how much more greater salvation have we been shown, right? Freedom not just from death in war, death at the hands of wicked men or starvation or plague. No, we've been given clear victory over sin and death and hell. That's the life we have been promised. And that's the main story that's behind any service that we could offer to God. So we dare not take that big picture for granted as we're pining after some sort of misguided sense of personal significance. You know, this past May, the great pastor Tim Keller passed away from pancreatic cancer. 
And shortly after that, his, um, his good friend John Piper made a video in which he was talking about the last email conversation that the two of them had had. And in it, Tim Keller told John Piper that he had been meditating on Luke chapter 10. So that's where Jesus appointed 72 of his followers, and they were going to go out and spread the good news and work miracles in his name. And then in chapter, in, in verse 17 of Luke 10, we read that the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Tim Keller took great comfort in that passage. He had seen God use him in bigger ways than he'd ever expected. He, he saw a, a chain of successful church plants in New York City. He co-founded the Gospel Coalition. He wrote, he wrote multiple New York Times best-selling books he was able to influence pastors and churches all over the world. But at the end of his life, none of that was his source of joy. He said he hoped younger pastors would remember what Jesus said. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. It's a question of what is your joy going to hang on? What is your sense of life going to depend upon? Because if it's on the success of this church and your influence in it, that is no source of lasting joy. But if it's on the fact that you belong to God and that your future is secure and that the best is yet to come, well, then you really can rejoice and you can always rejoice. Even if the whole rest of your earthly journey were to be marked by heartache. God tells Baruch, I will give your life as a prize of war. So fulfilling his ministry would feel to Baruch kind of like trying to survive the horrors of war. But it's a war that God was to win, and it's a war that after which God would give Baruch his own life as the spoils of war. And the situation is no different for us as we seek to serve God today. It's not the possible successes that keep us going in the war. It's not the grandeur of the role that we are given that keeps us going in the war. It's the mercy that God gives us. That's what we hope in. That's what keeps us going till we reach the other side. And so, Brett, as you approach the office of Pastor Elder, keep coming back to the free gift of life in Christ. Because that's the only reward, that's the only motivation that is certain. All else can come and go. You can feel like a great success one minute and then a huger failure the next. But life in Christ will not come and go. It's here to stay. And that has nothing to do with what you achieve in ministry. It also has nothing to do with your own pursuit of holiness. Sure, your, how holiness works out in you is a confirmation of sorts that you have been given this gift, but that's not what gets it for you or keeps it for you. This life is the spoils of war for you because it's the gift of God. It's, it's because he's keeping you. He has deaths marked out for you. I don't know what they are yet. You know, I don't know what they are for me either. But for every minister, he has deaths marked out for us to walk through. But on the other side is life. And that process serves to accentuate the glory of his gift of life. So even though Baruch couldn't have understood this at, at the time of his ministry, 
like all Christian ministry, Baruch's life was an embodiment of the gospel. It showed life out of death. The Apostle Paul says, For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So in every difficulty, his spirit reminds us of this promise of life. His spirit gives us down payments of that reward, which are always enough to keep us going and to keep us grounded in joy. We keep going. We finish the race. We're content without any earthly greatness because... Henceforth, there is laid up for us the crown of righteousness, which the Lord will award on that day to all who have loved his appearing. So let's consider this morning, each of us, do we love his appearing? Or are we more eager for ourselves to be seen? When we seek to serve the Lord, are we pursuing just like this seemingly holier version of the same self-fulfillment that the world runs after? Are you, like Baruch, like me, tempted to grumble at times because you had dreamed of God doing something quite different through you? Well, verse 5 shows us that since God mercifully writes us into his eternally significant story, that means we can respond by accepting personal failure, we can accept obscurity. We can accept disappointment and discouragement now. Because though our ministry, he, through it he's saving a remnant, he is also bringing disaster on his enemies. It's complex. He's bringing history to a close in a wonderful and a dreadful way. And the tasks he has for you right now, they may not bear any visible fruit. Yet can you not rejoice? He has given you life. And in the end, he will withhold from you no good thing. Baruch had been a young man with promise, and now it seemed that he had nothing to show for it. He was going to go on to witness wholesale slaughter and rape and disease and people cursing God during the siege of Jerusalem. And then after further turmoil, he'd have to flee south. And then he was probably also carried off to Babylon after that, after um, Egypt was conquered. But even in the wake of all that destruction and all that exile, apparent failure of his ministry to call the people of God to repentance, Baruch's life did count for something. Because it's only through his efforts that we have this Old Testament book of Jeremiah. And because of that, Baruch has been revered by Jews and honored by Christians down through the centuries. So brothers and sisters, be okay with your good works being equally accidental in their impact. May the flavor of our service to God be well-seasoned by a humble submission to a master whose ways are often mysterious. And if we're content to embrace obscurity, then future generations will worship as they see what we've planted Unfold a harvest that was sown through efforts that were too often tempted to dismiss as disappointing. So don't pursue significance. Not even significance for the sake of Christ, as if that were a thing. Pursue God and rest in his promise of life and serve in that way. God, we pray for greater grace that that would be the case for each one of us. We thank you for this, this warning that gets after our heart motives as we so eagerly serve you. Lord, we pray that we would understand the times. We pray that you would 
keep us from pining after great things when that's not what you have promised here in this place. But Lord, cause us to be every day excited by life, excited that we know you, excited that we get you, we get to be in your presence forever. Lord, that's our reward and it's more than enough. So Lord, we thank you for your promises that you will preserve us through whatever hard service you have us walk through. And we glorify your name. Amen.